0: Welcome to Taiwan On Air, Kongzhong Zibo Taiwan. Hello everyone, this is Tihan Zhang Tihan, one of the hosts of our Taiwan On Air podcast series, sponsored by Spotlight Taiwan Project from the Ministry of Culture, as well as the European Association of Taiwan City, and today we are here for a book chat. Our guest today is a renowned Taiwanese LGBTQ writer, Professor Ti Dawei, born in Taichung in the 70s. Today, Ji Dawei is both a writer and a scholar that is internationally known. His scholarly work focuses on LGBTQ studies, disability studies, and Sinophone literary history, while his award-winning creative writing ranges from science fiction to queer short stories. Professor Ji holds a doctoral degree in comparative literature from UCLA and now works as associate professor of Taiwanese literature at the National Zhengzhi University. During the early 1990s, the topic of sexuality remained a taboo issue that could not be openly discussed in Taiwanese society. At the beginning of his writer's career, Qi saw the necessity to challenge this taboo culture and explore the concept of sexuality and physical desires. Therefore, in his debut short story collections, Queer Senses, a Story Cycle of Sexuality, 感官世界, Qi Dawei used bow language to reinterpret fairy tales and explore homosocialism Homosexuality and social morality for LGBTQ perspectives. His first sci fi novel, Membrane, More, published in 1995, is now widely considered a classic of queer speculative fictions in Sinophone literature. Ji Dawei weaves a dystopian trope into a sensitive portray of a queer woman's quest for self understanding. This renowned work was later translated both into French and English and even Japanese for the international readers and is widely adopted as required reading in program of Taiwan Literary Studies. As a scholar, Chi also contributes to many important academic publications. His recent work, A Queer Invention in Taiwan, A History of Tongzu Literature has in many ways defined a new paradigm for Taiwanese literature after the 1950s. Welcome to our book chat, Professor Ji. Huan Ying Huan
1: Hi, thank you, Di Han. I'm Dawei Ji, and I'm very happy to meet you all here.
0: Thank you, Professor Ji. Let's crack on with the first set of conversation that Professor Ji can engage with us more in this podcast. In the first part, I would like to have a conversation with Professor Ji on the subject of queering Anthropocene, as this was the thematic topic of our Taiwan Festival event we hosted at UCLan this April. I have to admit that a large part of the choice of this theme was also inspired by Ji Dawei's membrane a fascinating sci-fi work uh, published in the 1990s. The novel imagines today's world as an anthropogenic dystopia. The life story of Momo, Ji protagonist, was unfolded little by little in front of the readers when Momo recapitulates her memories of the past. Through Momo's lens, readers discover not only her biological sex transition, but also her transformation into a cyborg body. Xi stories brilliantly opens up the liberating possibility of inventing new forms of kinship and sexual identities. It enables us to see the intersections of human and machine. With this story plot in mind, the first questions I want to ask Xi is that, given that we know it is a tradition for sci-fi novel to choose a dystopian world or large-scale environmental or humanitarian crisis as backdrop, What is the main driver for you to choose anthropogenic global warming as your setting? Although we understand that climate change and global warming began to be widely discussed in the political domain in the late 80s and early 90s, at that time, eco-criticism or eco-literature had not received as much attention as it has today. So why do we want to incorporate these features as the setting of your novel?
1: Okay, thank you. May I confess something personal? Of course, of course. I have been with my partner for a long while, and I first met him when I was in college. In the 90s, he was a graduate student uh, working on the crisis on the ozone layers. And uh, I knew nothing about the climate crisis at that time, but he talked about the issue a lot. Therefore, I got inspired. And uh, he told me that, for instance, air condition was disastrous to the planet and uh, how we should protect the ozone layer. We are still together, but even now, he enjoys air conditioning. And uh, we often find uh, how cold the air conditioning is. He prefers it to be colder. So we see that uh, he's very contradictory. Uh, but uh, thanks to him, so I was determined to write something about the climate change in the 90s.
0: I see. It's very funny because you said that his study of ozone layer and uh, influenced you to talk about climate change. But yeah, you said that in practice, in life, you guys don't engage that much about the global warming issue at
1: that time. It's also true that all of us feel that the planet gets warmer and warmer. It's so warm in the new century, much more than it used to be. So I think that uh, the sad.
0: Okay. So taking on this climate change and anthropogenic sort of global warming sort of problems a bit further, one thing that we did discuss, because I have used your text for my teaching this year. Mm, thank you. And <laughs> we have quite, uh, not necessarily a heated debate, but like uh, inviting students to share their view. And then I think there is one shared source is quite interesting. It's re- also related a, a little bit, tangentially about this climate change issue. So there's a female student in my class. She raised her more objections to the novel's description, which suggests that all convicts, uh, as you describe in the novel, they were left on the resources land to burn and meet their fate. And others, for example, like Momo, or those very rich conglomerate people who can get skin treatment, they can go down to live in the ocean. Mm-hmm. She said that because of this, she find that how sad it is that only the people who are more wealthy, they can get relocated in the deep ocean. Is it how you perceive humanity when you're writing this sort of climate change settings in the past? And do you think still is the case today, for example, when it's face-to-face, climate change now is almost becoming our reality? So do you see it this way? And also on this note, do you happen to know that there is um, developing technology in Japan now, actually, in their experimental stage? There are scientists that are really exploring methods to build habitable cities under the ocean and provide climate refugee in the Pacific. So what are your thoughts about these?
1: Thank you. First of all, I have to thank the student that you just mentioned. In fact, I remember that we had an online meeting with you and your students a while ago, and I was so impressed that some of your students took my book very seriously. Obviously, I can see that they are not Taiwanese, they belong to other races and ethnicities. Yeah. They seem to take this Chinese novel very seriously. I feel so impressed. I think that the question really caught me unaware. I admit that in the 90s, when I wrote the novel, it didn't occur to me that a key word here is redemption. Nowadays, it's very common in today's science fiction to talk about redemption, how redemption is given to some lucky chosen people, and how redemption is not available to so many refugees, either climate refugees or... Political refugees as well. Yeah, and uh, it's so unfair. And I think that the uneven distribution of redemption is a heated topic nowadays. But when I wrote the novel, it didn't occur to me to deal with this. Certainly it's a moral flaw in (laughs) my novel.
0: No, I don't think it's a moral flaw. I think it's actually a very accurate sort of reflections.
1: Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. And I also agree that uh, there is no good solution here. Thank you for telling me that uh, Japan is developing something like uh, the communities under the sea. But in addition to what you told uh, told me, we also know that space colonization is very commonly discussed nowadays in mainstream media. And uh, so many mega billionaires uh, try to sell us tickets to visit the outer space or even to relocate there. But uh, it's obvious that uh, most of us cannot afford it. Only the super-rich can do it. So when you talk about the communities under the sea, I think about the outer space, spatial VIP visit. And again, it occurs to me that even the distribution of vaccines nowadays is something similar. Because we know that the rich countries can get the vaccines, but the poor countries cannot get enough. Or maybe they get none. So we see that the technology seems to be great, but the redemption is really only available to very few people. It is a serious problem. Yes, I totally agree.
0: In a way, it sort of also remind me of Ursula Le Guin's novel. In the future that she projected it is either in a very commonly distributed world or the neoliberalism and capitalism takes the form to the extreme that there you have the super-rich and then people who are intelligent, but they dominate the whole society. And then a counterpart is that people who will get exploited over there. And I think especially climate fictions in this respect projects our humanity then push it into the extreme. So that's why I feel at least like this sort of portrayal is quite accurate. <laughs> Omo is a person who's also, we discovered that she's a cyborg, but she... Has this sort of access because she's also sitting in a, at least in my view, a bourgeois kind of like middle upper class.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: And then serve those people who are super rich. <laughs> it's very, very interesting. So, one thing that I couldn't help but notice is the similarities between your work, Kazuo Ishiguro's novel. When I was rereading the membrane this year, it kept on coming to my mind that if there is a fusion of Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. Which was published in 2005 in the stories talk about cloned human beings raised to be organ donors. And his later work, Carla and the Sun, was published during lockdown. Another story about AF, also Android friend, being designed to accompany ill child and potentially becomes surrogate of this ill child if the child passes away. So what are your comments with regard to this similarity? Because do you see that there is high resemblance of your work, especially to the latter one, because you also talk about Momo having the android friend Andy, right? Or do you think that they are the same, but it was a coincidence? And at the same time, you have very different style of writing this fictional world.
1: <laughs> Any friend to bring this up, I need to make a, a sound disclaimer. Ishiguro's uh, science fiction was not published, I mean, at least two. Uh, he didn't publish science fiction until the 21st century, but uh, my main was writing in the previous century, so I respect him a lot, but I have to clarify that my science fiction was published prior to his. But I think that uh, maybe it would be productive to zoom out, to contextualize both his fiction and mine in the science fiction public culture in East Asia. Right. We know that uh, Ishiguro is from Japanese parents. I don't know if he reads any Japanese manga and anime, but uh, I grew up, like so many people in Asia and especially Taiwan, reading a lot of uh, Japanese animation and manga. And uh, in fact, Cyborg's uh, replicas, androids, and their human owners have been so popular in Japan.
0: In the 1990s.
1: Yeah, not only in the 90s. Uh, I think that uh, in the 70s, 80s, all the way to the present. And uh, we might need to remember that uh, Japan suffered a lot because of the atom bomb explosions in Hiroshima and uh, Nagasaki. I think more or less because of that, the Japanese artists and uh, manga artists have been so preoccupied with the questions of human bodies, uh, human sufferings, rotten organs, diseases. I don't know if you read any Japanese manga in the past or the present. Yes, I did. You will find that, uh, in fact, the uh, cyborgs and their human companions are very common in Japanese animation in the past and the present. So I think that my membranes is really is deeply indebted to the tradition in Japan. And I think Ishiguro might also inspire somewhere. Many of you know that the uh, Astro Boy is a very famous uh, Japanese anime manga figure in Japan, and Astro uh, Boy himself is a cyborg. Right. Yeah, and uh, we also know that the artist of Extra Boy is also known for a character called the Black Jack, a very strange surgeon, and uh, this surgeon also has a cyber companion who is little girl. I don't know if you remember this.
0: Yeah, yeah, I remember. I, I remember. What's it called? Hey, <laughs> Jack Is it? Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was so natural for me too and other East Asian writers to develop science fiction with the cyborgs. Yeah, because we grew up young.
0: Yes, and I think you definitely touch upon a very important point, whereas when I teach my students about Japanese energy policy and everything and sustainability, there is a fascination with Japan because they have this traumatic experience in a sense that they... Have been obsessed since then. Even the invention of Godzilla, uh, the monster, the sea monster.
1: Oh yes, yes, yes.
0: They are the result of this sort of monstrous and unable to understand the human body and the supernatural, and perhaps related to human and machine. Basically, the binding between the two. And I think you are totally right to say. Whereas your inspirations come from here and Ishiguro, because sure, he's um, by birth a Japanese writer, but from what I remember, I think he migrated to England when he was little.
1: Yeah, yeah. So he
0: might have some sort of insight of Japanese culture but not necessarily as when you are writing it you are writing it in a way that in alignment with Japanese sort of manga anime. But you are right because in his work for example, Car and the Sun is more popular sort of science fictions in the 21st century and speculative fiction sort of nature. And it also shows an abstract kind of view and saying that how do we reconsider uh, this kind of like Google, Monopoly, Apple, and then how all the gadgets that are integrated with our body, basically. So it's a different sort of inspiration sources, I guess, different context.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's true. And uh, we know that uh, Ishiguro basically his career is in, in the UK too is so famous and also so infamous for all the technical innovations. I think that the the founder of Virgin also visited other space several years ago, right? And I also remember that when I wrote The Membranes, I was inspired by a news report from the UK about a lamb called Dolly. The dolly was artificially made but not born. So the UK is really responsible for a lot of uh, controversial innovations.
0: There's one little thing that I want to end this section is about the topic of gender fluidity and human-machine relations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From what I see, that you have more exhibitions of this part, more complex than Ishiguro's. What are your thoughts?
1: Okay, thank you for noticing this. When I wrote The Membranes, uh, I was also inspired and motivated by the social movements in Taiwan then, including the LGBT movements and the feminist movements and so on. And uh, I have to say that the inspiration from the social movements made my writing very different from the Japanese anime and uh, the pop science fiction from Japan, because the social movements including the gender social movements, made me sensitive to the the so-called normal standards of gender, sexuality, and so on. However, such gender norms have been basically fixed, rigid in Japanese science fiction and animation. So we find that in Japanese science fiction, the girls are always girls. Okay, whether they are human or android, they are basically always feminine. The robots in Japanese animation, if they are male, they are always standardly male. Although we know that the transgender transformation occurs from time to time in Japanese public culture, but basically, the gender norms are mostly very fixed in Japanese tradition. But uh, I was enlightened by many uh, pioneering LGBT activists and feminine activists. So when I started to write the membranes, I was determined to portray the characters whose genders and uh, sexualities were not fixed, but the fluid. So I think that the, uh, really admit me that motivation and the inspiration, the social movements in the, in the 1990s, Taiwan taught me.
0: I think it's very cool Like you have perceived this to come in 20 uh, years before, like all my students, the younger people, the generations in England, gender fluidity is a very common sort of thing today. And then whereas in the 1990s, you have the society as turning into a, that direction, actually.
1: I really have to admit that uh, many of my cool friends and the teachers at that time taught me a lot. When we watch science fiction movies from Hollywood uh, or when we read science fiction novels all over the world, we often find the, the central figure of a girl. A girl who, whether she is human or a cyber, she is always extremely feminine, extremely sexy, sexualized, eroticized, and uh, always waiting for guys, for heroes to save her. Or penetrate her. A lot is really repetition and it is so tiresome. When I wrote the membranes in the 90s, I was already fed up with uh, the release repetition. And but nowadays we see that uh, such a repetition is even more common across, like uh, Netflix. Basically, we are watching uh, the science fiction version of the Barbie doll. So the gender norms are still very much fixed, not a challenge nowadays.
0: You have explained what motivated you to write sci-fi earlier, but these days a new genre called speculative fiction has emerged and many scholars, they have placed your work actually in this genre. In your own eyes, do you see it more as a sci-fi novel or do you think that the category of speculative fiction fits better? Following these kind of ideas, would you say that Membrane also qualify as a queer speculative eco-literature? And what is your view on marrying the gender theme to eco-literature? Do you think it is simply a a trendy thing, or do you think there is a good potential?
1: Thank you for your, your very thoughtful, well-prepared questions. Yes, uh, it's fair to say that the speculative literature and speculative fiction is also on the rise. But um, I think many uh, writers as well as reviewers and scholars also find that uh, actually we can also see observe a lot of overlapping between science fiction and the speculative fiction. I think for the time being, we can say that the science fiction is usually more about what is impossible, what is really out of reach from our status quo, and the speculative fiction is usually critical of our status quo. For instance, uh, space travels are not yet widely available to us. So space uh, travels usually belong to the realm of science fiction. But uh, discussions of climate change and uh, global warming are already okay. We are besieged by these problems. So such problems usually belong to the realm of uh, speculative fiction. And I think that the membrane is very fortunate because some scholars of discussions are very generous and uh, assign it to both science fiction and uh, speculative fiction. Obviously, it's all fantastical. It contains so much fantasy. So naturally, it can be considered as a work of a science fiction. But... Um, I also agree that uh, many find that uh, the membranes offers a lot of discussions and the criticism of climate change. So it's very relevant to speculative fiction as well. Earlier, you also asked if it's possible to consider the membranes as a work of queer, speculative, eco-literature. I think, yeah, theoretically it's possible because nowadays we often have to acknowledge that zoners overlap and uh, it's difficult to draw the fine line between one another. We also agree that the climate change issue of gender can be a feminist question, can be a queer question. Because just think, when our planet is suffering, which part of the population will suffer more? Do women suffer more than men in our overheated summer? This summer, we know that Europe and the UK are already warmer than Taiwan. And in this situation, women in general suffer more than men. The women in labor and who plan to get pregnant, or how about women who have to travel for long distance to get abortions? And the travels involve more carbon emissions. So we can see that uh, the climate change are really problems for women and uh, maybe for queer people as well. I cannot say that the membranes already does a good job on discussing all of the issues at the same time, but I think maybe the membranes already opens a beginning of combining of these questions.
0: Definitely. I think what you said is right. Like, we don't necessarily need to see queer uh, speculative eco-literature as a impact, but more like a theoretical questioning, whether, for example, for gay populations, for women populations, or even they use it as a theoretical adaptation to say, well, what about other minority people like suffering from climate change and then its impact, and then use it as a question to challenge that kind of genre, I think is very, very interesting. And then that's where your work that comes in, in the 90s that can offer foresight, basically. I think it's very, very
1: interesting. Uh, I don't know if it's a foresight. Uh, thank you. So in the final
0: section of our podcast, I want to ask more of a personal comment from Professor T Dawei about his journey as a writer and as an academic. So after your publications of Membran, it doesn't appear that you have much uh, fictional publication, but you have worked more on scholarly publications. And uh, you're often regarded being, as I see, both as writer and academic identities, having these two identities. And I want to ask you, which one? would you say that you enjoy more? And is there any reason that you shift from doing both of them and rather keeping only the academic sort of identity? I remember when we invited uh, Mr. Wu Ming-Li to come to our Taiwan Festival last year, he mentioned actually in his talk saying that he was like you, having both identities in the past, but later on he chose only to work on fictional publication because he felt like uh, when he writes literary criticism... Most people would tend to use it reductively uh, of his scholarly works in reading his fictional work. Would you say that you have made similar decisions uh, like him, but simply in an opposite direction?
1: I find that Professor Ummi's decision is very understandable because uh, we know that uh, working as an academic is a full-time job. And to write as a writer is also a full time job. And how can one handle so many full time jobs at the same time? We know that uh, some academics are mothers, and the mothers are also full time jobs. So many of us really overwork. And uh, I think that uh, it's very uh, reasonable for Professor Uming to prioritize creative writing for the time being and uh, uh, over his academic uh, productions. And for myself, I think I didn't publish much fiction after I published The Membranes in the 1990s. After and before the publication of The Membranes, uh, many of my works were published in the forms of short stories or essays. And the size really matters because when I was a graduate student and uh, later on uh, when I became a junior faculty member, um, I didn't have much time. That's why... I will use my limited time to produce short stories and uh, essays instead of longer novels. I'm much older now, and uh, I know that very soon, maybe in less than 20 years, I will be retiring. And um, I am wondering what I would want to do when I am retiring. Would I prefer to write fiction, or would I prefer to write another monograph? So I think that the, the question is really depends on the person's life stage or age and uh, certainly many preferences. But uh, I think that the the preferences really have a lot to do with the life stages and the age differences. In Taiwan, many professionals prefer to turn to fiction writing when they are retired. It's the case with politicians, lawyers, doctors, and uh, uh, literature scholars. When they are retiring or when they are retired, they don't want to publish anything in their profession anymore. They only want literature. So maybe this will happen to me (laughs) when I am retiring. Mm -hmm. It's uh, nice of you to ask which one is more enjoyable. I am very lucky because I enjoy both creative writing and uh, academic writing. We know that uh, to do something with one's full attention is really a blessing. So I enjoy both of them. But uh, I, I really need to choose. It's difficult to do both of them in one period of time. So I will try to seek the balance of the two in the near future. Thank you. No, because
0: I think as many writers that I have conversation with, they often have really, really like sort of powerful emotional sort of, they, they felt missing that kind of creativity process. I thought you might miss uh, the process, but, I suppose academic writing is also quite challenging and can show your creativity inside as well.
1: I think this applies to you as well. As literature scholars, we need a lot of literary um, imagination when we write papers. If we don't, we will suffer a lot in the process of writing papers. So the final question that I have for Professor Ji
0: is that we know that uh, you are in Zhengzhou University and you supervise quite many postgraduate students and some of them are also for joining sci-fi novelists in Taiwan, like Miss um, Ling Xinhui, who you recommended greatly and then to participate at our Taiwan festival this year.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I want to know, what do you see in Taiwan's uh, next generations of sci-fi writing? And as their mentor or source of inspiration, how do you guide them or nurture them in your capacity when they are under your
1: supervision? <laughs> it's great to mention Ling Xinhui. Ling Xinhui is one of the rising stars among younger writers in Taiwan not only in science fiction, but also in fiction writing in general. But I I have to do some minor correction. It's true that uh, many of my students uh, happen to be writers on themselves, but uh, they do that not because of my supervision or because of my colleague's supervision, but because many students really work on their own. They are motivated by themselves. I think several things are... Uh, very obvious among the young writers. The first one is that uh, um, they really pay attention to a lot of details of Taiwanese uh, history or uh, in general the Taiwanese legacy and uh, they do a lot of hard work so that they would accommodate sufficient or even overwhelming details and uh, insights from the legacy of Taiwan. And I would have to say that the Regarding this, they might be more hardworking than me and the writers of my age. Writers of my previous generation, when they were young, they were often known for depiction of their fantasies of experiences abroad. It's very different now. Younger writers today really pay attention to the local, to what's happening now, what's happening here in Taiwan. And I really admire their uh, devotion. The second characteristic is also very related to the first one. As writers, they really need to talk about politics and uh, to talk about uh, what is being political. And uh, they will find it absurd if somebody says that politics is not relevant to literature or us. No, it's not the case for them. They really find that uh, politics is so important and uh, justice for all is important. Many of them would engage themselves with justice for Aboriginal people in Taiwan, even if they are not from uh, Aboriginal backgrounds. We also know that uh, uh, young writers pay a lot of attention to new immigrants who are new to Taiwan or immigrant workers. Their literature is also practicing some kind of sociology because we know that the marginalized population discussed in sociology. Young writers I know in Taiwan are very admirable. Mm-hmm. So you think that
0: basically their work, the sci-fi writing in the future, will also incorporate that kind of sociological phenomenon quite a lot?
1: Yes, yes. And for instance, Li Xinhui's fiction as well, science fiction, is uh, so concerned with global warming and uh, how the ocean uh, becomes a garbage dump. And uh, yeah, dumping up garbage it becomes a global problem for all. And I think that Lin Xinhui and the writers of her generation are very concerned with this.
0: Thank you uh, very much uh, for Professor Qi Dawei of this wonderful and fruitful discussion today. I was so delighted this year that we have the o- occasion to meet you. We do hope that one day we'll be able to invite you again to the UK for physical attendance. <laughs>
1: yes, yes, yes. Certainly. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye.